Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for Cram for the Exam. It's our annual um, program that we do the Saturday before the AP government exam that's coming up on Monday. And we're hearing from students, uh, high school students from around the country, asking them questions and we'll take their questions. And I'm joined by two high school teachers. Shoshana Adams is from Valhalla High School and Sunshine Cavaluzzi is from El Dorado High School, both in California. Ladies, welcome. Thank you so much. We're so happy to be here. Thank you very much. Well, a couple of questions before we start taking uh, students' calls. Um, it's the 14th year that we're doing this here on C-SPAN. What can students, administrators expect this year for the exam? I think, I think that there's going to be some changes uh, for students who are used to the way that they have tested over the last two years. The last two years, uh, there have been digital options. Um, required or optional uh, and this year it's going to be 100% back to uh, paper pen and pencil and so students who have only tested digitally are going to have an adjustment this year hopefully they've had a chance to practice and if not my advice is put your pen to the paper and don't stop writing <laughs> exactly and so the one of the features of the AP government test that's interesting is there are four different kinds of writing on the one exam. So there are four questions for the free response portion, but each of them is attacked and addressed a different way. And then there are 55 multiple choice questions in 80 minutes and the four free response questions in 100 minutes. Mm -hmm. So total amount of time for this exam is, is what? Three hours. Yes, 180 mm -hmm. minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> With a break in, in between the 80 minute multiple choice, then about a 10 minute break, and then 100 minutes of free response. And in the AP Gov world, you get four questions, you write four questions in the 100 minutes. So some exams, you have a choice of questions. In other exams, you have thinking time before you start writing. This doesn't have either of those things. It's four questions, 100 minutes, go. And another benefit this year uh, that differs from last year, last year students had to write, if they were writing digitally, they had to write one question at a time. They could not skip back and forth between them. And um, that's a little bit of a hindrance for students. Uh, because sometimes you remember something as you're writing uh, and they weren't able to go back and, and kind of edit. This year they'll have the normal situation where they can see all four questions. Our advice would be attack the one that you know best first, show off, and then work your way down. You don't have to go in order. Um, and if you think of something, draw a little arrow and place it where you want it to be in your response. And the other thing we would add on to that is not just don't attack the question in order, you, the questions one, two, three, four, you also don't have to do them in order A, B, C. Mm -hmm. right? It's not scrapbooking. You're not paying by the page. So if you're not sure about B, leave a whole bunch of space, 
then write your answer to C, and then go back and put B in there. But get your points on the page first, do the stuff that you know. And I know some of uh, our students are feeling a little apprehensive, and I'm sure that's true across the country, about, well, I type faster than I write, and the last two years I got to type. But you don't get extra credit for fancy answers. You get a po point if the answer's right, and no points if the answer's wrong. So just get an answer on paper and enjoy the advantage of being able to toggle back and forth between questions on the multiple choice as well as on the free response. All right, and our phone lines are going to be regional. So if you're in the Eastern or Central time zones, you can call us on 202-748-8000. And if you're in Mountain Pacific, you can call us on 202-748-8001. Again, high school students only for this hour up until the end of the program. So what's, uh, I mean, last question before we start talking to students. What's your advice then for um, these last, I guess, two days? What should students be doing now? Sure, there are a number of things that we would say would be the priority right now. First of all, exhale. Mm -hmm. Trust what you've already done. You've put a whole year or a whole semester into doing this work. It's all there. It's all in filing cabinets in your brain, so you just need to engage in some retrieval practice. And that's best fueled by sleep, by good nutrition, Correct. and by not panicking. You can never go wrong reviewing vocab. This is in many, many ways a great big vocabulary test. So making sure you're as conversant in the vocab as possible is a fantastic strategic approach. And remembering that being a good test strategist is as important as knowing the information. So thinking through what's going to be your strategic approach. And then reviewing the docs and cases are good as well. I'm sure you have some advice to layer onto that. Yeah, in addition to that, I would just suggest that if someone did want to spend time reviewing, this is not the time to be learning a bunch of new information or minutia. This is a time to be uh, categorizing in your brain which concepts in this course, which documents, which cases go together. Mm -hmm. So almost making mind maps um, you know, uh, about federalism, about civil rights, and so on, uh, would be a good use of time. And an area that both of you wanted to talk about was the quantitative analysis um, mm -hmm. questions. We're going to put up a, a sample up on the screen and um, talk about what, you know, what this is and what you can tell us about these questions. Okay. So for quantitative analysis, the benefit is you're looking at a visual. It's in front of you. The, uh, the data and the information is right there for you to grab. So you want to check what is um, on the horizontal axis, what is on the vertical axis. Don't ignore titles. If there is a title or an explanation at the top or at the bottom of the visual, be sure you read it. The other thing that you want to check for before you even get to the questions, are there numbers? Mm -hmm. um, is there data in this visual? Then when you get to the questions, you're usually going to see a pretty straightforward identify um, in part A. And uh, that'll be a pretty easy statement. Yes, part A is, can you read an infographic? <laughs> right. So don't, don't overthink it. And remember, when you see the verb identify, that means list. That's not the time to write an essay about every single thing you know about that topic. That mm -hmm. is the time to quickly, concisely answer the question, which is not to say to shortchange it. it. Write one clear sentence describing it in clear language, but make sure you actually give a direct answer to that question. Correct. And then part B is usually going to ask you to delve further into what you're seeing and to analyze it. If your graphic has numbers, part B better have numbers in your answer. So you want to use the numbers that are provided to you as an illustration of the concept or uh, the answer that you provided in part A. And make sure you're describing those numbers accurately. And that's where uh, what Shoshana said about reading the labels on the chart, if it's any kind of chart, table, graph, etc is of paramount importance because 
If that chart is showing percentages, yes. your answer needs to say percentages. Correct. If you're showing like this one does change over time, mm -hmm. it needs to say the percentage increase, not the number increased, because we don't know if the raw number increased, we know from the graphic that the percentage increased. So being very, very precise about that language is of tremendous importance. And then when you're asked to apply this, making sure you're picking an application option that actually connects to the data. So if the question is about elections, mm -hmm. your answer probably shouldn't talk about lobbying because lobbying is about policy making, not about getting the job. It's about what you do once you, with someone who already has the job. If you're asked about iron triangles, you need to pick an interest group, not a necessarily, not a political party to talk right. about. Right? So making right. sure you're precisely asking the question that you're pulling down from the prompt to support your answer. And that's the nice thing. I think people get intimidated about these quantitative analysis questions because, oh, there's math and this is a mm -hmm. social science class. But the nice thing is so much of the answer is already on the page. You just need to transfer it down into your response and show that you know how to use it. All right. On this particular infra infographic, there's a change over time. And so what you would want to do is you would want to compare apples to apples. So uh, if we're talking about Republicans in one uh, group of columns, you want to compare to Republicans in the second group of columns. All right, ladies, let's talk to students now. And students, mm -hmm. we have challenge questions for you. If you would like to answer a question, uh, you can. If you answer correctly, the first two that answer will get some C-SPAN merch. Uh, we have a C-SPAN water bottle and we have a, a tote bag, so we will give those to the first two students that call in and answer one of our challenge questions correctly, or you can ask a question to the teachers. First up is Madison in Mosley, Virginia. Hi, Madison. Hi. Do you have a question or do you want to answer a question? I'd like to do both, but I wanted to shout out my AP Gov teacher, Ms. Mills, from Cosby High School. Okay. Um, my question is, can you describe the difference between a mandate and certain types of grants, such as like a block grant or a project grant? Sure. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. So a mandate, if we think about as an order, mm -hmm. right, then it is a requirement that states do something. Now, if the mandate comes with money, it's a funded mandate. If it comes without money from the federal government to help the states impose it, then it is an unfunded mandate and is for sure unfun mm -hmm. for the states, which is why <laughs> we see reforms to that like the Unfunded Mandates Reform Act or UMRA. So if the mandate, which is an order, again, the best example, I think in, in many ways the easiest to write about is the Americans with Disabilities Act. Let's see if we can't go to our next caller, which is Jackson in Parker, Colorado. Hi, Jackson. Hi. Um, I have a question. Do you want to do a shout out to your teacher first? <laughs> yes, I would like to shout out Miss Gable from Parker, Colorado. Um, she teaches our seventh grade AP government class, and she is just the greatest. Okay. Go ahead with and your question, Jackson. My question is, what are the different types of polling you think we should know for the AP government exam? Different types of polling. Did you guys get that? Yeah, we're having trouble with that line, as you can see. But let's talk to Savannah in High Point, North Carolina. Hi, Savannah. What do you I think? I would like to shout out. Yes, go I ahead. I have to shout out Mrs. Hoots from my AP government class. Okay. Do I have a question? You have a question. Okay. Let's hear your question. Could you explain the court case New York Times versus United States? New York Times versus United States. So we will save that question, um, and we will go to our next caller as the control room is working very hard to get the, those two ladies back, and um, we will do our best. So let's talk next to Caitlin in 
Summerfield, North Carolina. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. First, I'd like to shout out my teacher, Ms. Hoot. And my question is, what do you think the quantitative or the argumentative essay is going to be on this year? Okay, the argumentative essay. What are you prepared for, Caitlin? Um, out of all the things, I think I'm most prepared for multiple choice out of the options. But for, like, I think the most confusing thing is the argumentative essay for me, and I'm trying to prepare best for that. Okay. Do you, are you feeling pretty confident about it, Caitlin, this test? Um, my teacher's gone over a lot of things really well, and we've practiced FRQs a lot. Um, confused on, like, getting each of the six points because, like, I know how to get thesis, but then sometimes I'll skip over one or two. Okay. Sounds good. And do you, do you watch C-SPAN, or is it just this uh, special? I haven't heard about C-SPAN until this special. All right. So, Caitlin, stand by. We're going to try to get your uh, question answered. Um, ladies, are you there? We're here. Great. Okay. We've got, uh, Caitlin wants to know what you think the argumentative essay is going to be about. (laughs) Well, we know for sure that it's going to ask you to discuss foundational documents. So while we can't predict exactly what it's going to be about, um, the odds are a little heavier in favor of there being something to do with checks and balances. Um, But we would recommend that as long as you are familiar with the foundational documents, that gives you an advantage. Remember that with the argumentative essay, you need to pick a side and stick to it, Mm -hmm. and your thesis needs to have a because. So whatever evidence you use from your foundational documents, um, it doesn't have to be even what you necessarily believe. Look at the question with the evidence that you are allowed for that first body paragraph. Which evidence can you use to, um, to assert either side of the claim and make that argument? And then remember that for your second body paragraph, you can use any evidence that you want. You can use um, historical information, current events, anything you've learned in this course. You can use a different one of the foundational documents offered to you. And then my last recommendation there would be remember to connect the dots. Whatever Mm. you said for your because in your thesis statement, you want to make sure that you take that evidence in body paragraphs one and two and connect it explicitly. Do not write fancy. Write like you're explaining it to an intelligent 11-year-old where you're just making the connection extremely explicit to your reader. Yes, don't assume your reader knows that you know. Mm -hmm. Give a full and clear and coherent explanation, but also pick the simplest explanation. Mm -hmm. So, um, Shoshana, I'm going to out you a little bit, and I know you're not particularly sporty, but what would you call an orange ball that you bounce and shoot into a hoop? A basketball. It's a basketball, Mm -hmm. exactly. You would not Mm -hmm. call it an orange ball that you bounce and shoot into a hoop or a circle that's bisected by a vertical line, a horizontal line, and two arc lines. You would call it a basketball. We can use those shortcuts from mind to mind. You should call things what they are, Mm -hmm. as long as you remember the term. If you can't, write around it and see, throw the spaghetti at the wall, maybe it'll stick. Mm -hmm. But if you can use the term, use it, but then define it. Show you know what it means, but oftentimes students get lost in that. They're just explaining the Voting Rights Act, and they forget, wait, I'm supposed to show how the Voting Rights Act furthered free and fair elections. So just remember, Caitlin, you're going to get a big concept of some sort, and you're going to have to show you know it. That's what the prompt is going to be. The more important thing is detailing how your evidence connects to that, and Shoshana's right. Pick an answer and stick to it. Find your lane, and that's your making an argument. You're asking... You're explaining to an intelligent 11-year-old why your mom should let you stay out past curfew. And it's an argument. And so make that argument strongly and in detail. Caitlin, do not let this prompt intimidate you. You're going to do great. 
And ladies, are you able to answer the question that we had before about the court case? Yes, New York Times v. U.S., the mm -hmm. big piece there is a heavy presumption against prior restraint. That's the takeaway. So the idea is can you ban something in advance of it being said? And generally, the answer has been no. That's a throwback to what was happening under British law at the time the Constitution was being written. But in this case, there was an attempt to stop the publication of something beforehand and got challenged. And what the Supreme Court said, anything that provides prior restraint comes to this court with a heavy presumption against its validity. It is presumed invalid. So you have to show a national security reason in order to engage in prior restraint to ban it in advance. That's the key takeaway from that case. Correct. And also that uh, the, the publication of the Pentagon Papers, while it would have been embarrassing to the national government, and Nixon was clearly opposed, um, it didn't pose a national security risk. And therefore, uh, the, the issue of prior restraint was a bigger concern to the court than this embarrassment to the government. So it's a great thematic look, which is going to cut across so many different cases and decisions of balancing. As Sean is right, that's that key word there something an individual wants or wants to do with the good of the whole or the state's police powers, as we might call mm -hmm. it. And if you think about most of the cases in that way, how are we trying to strike a balance between one piece and the other that will help cut through some of the language that can be really confusing in those majority opinions? Okay, I have a tweet for you that's come in from Olive, yeah. and she says, what is something that might be used to check the bureaucracy other than passing legislate legislation? Sure. So when you're thinking about checks and balances, right, you have to pick another branch. Since you know, I'm sure, that the bureaucracy is in the executive branch, then you've got to go with Congress or the judiciary. So the judiciary checks always easy, right, which is judicial review. Right? They can review these actions of the bureaucracy and find those actions to have outstepped the Constitution. When you're dealing with Congress, and if any of my students from El Dorado High School, go Golden Hawks, from my beloved second period class are watching, you're going to say this with me at home, right? When you hear Congress, you think power of the purse. Power of the purse right. works in almost any answer that involves Congress, and it certainly does in this one, since that, those bureaucratic agencies all get their funding from Congress. You think power of the purse, and then after that, you think oversight, because oversight almost always works in an answer, and it would in this one as well. All right, let's talk to Kayla in Corona, California. Kayla, do you want to answer a question or do you want to ask a question? Can I ask a question, please? But first, can I shout out Mr. Ruelas' six-period class? Yeah, go right ahead. All right, great. Can you talk about apportionment and redistricting and explain why apportionment must proceed redistricting? Okay, so for apportionment, uh, you, the, the issue is to have a fair uh, drawing of districts so that you have appropriate representation in Congress, um, especially so that we have, um, that the, the districts are upholding the one man, one vote principle. Um, you know that the districts are redrawn based on the census every 10 years. Um, and so it's Im really important that once the, the census measures where people are, uh, that the, the districts are drawn in a way that uh, does not more heavily weight the vote of people in one area than in another. Right. So you need apportionment first. I think that was your question, Kayla. And props to you for getting up so early as well here on West Coast Time. <laughs> you need apportionment first so you know how many districts to draw. Apportionment tells you how many seats you're going to get. Redistricting tells you where they go. All right. Next up is Maria in Ohio. Hi, Maria. Hi. Can I give a quick shout out to my uh, AP Gov teacher? Go right ahead. 
Um, a quick shout out to Mr. Patton for teaching my sixth period everything we know about APGov. He's great. All right. Do you have a question or do you want to answer a question? Um, can I ask a question? Go ahead. What would you think is like the most important? I know that everything in the Constitution is obviously very important, but what's the main thing we should focus on when looking at the Constitution? If you're looking at the Constitution for review, the main thing you should focus on are checks and balances. You yes. are absolutely going to need to know how different branches can limit each other. And then you really can't go wrong with the Bill of Rights either because you know in the SCOTUS comparison question you are going to be asked about a court case that almost definitely is going to be rooted somewhere in the Bill of Rights. I, I, you, know, you know, there are those few, of course, that aren't, but almost all of them are. But the big thing you're looking at it with an I-4 is checks and balances and discerning which of the powers are formal powers mm -hmm. so that you can, by exclusion, identify the ones that are informal powers. I would also recommend that you familiarize yourself just with a couple of phrases. Of course, you want to know necessary and proper, a.k.a. elastic clause. Um, you want to know supremacy clause. Uh, and you probably want to have, um, as Sunshine said, uh, a clear example in mind, in your back pocket, ready to use in your writing of a couple of formal powers uh, that Congress has, a couple of formal powers that the president has, and then we know what the courts can do. All right, Connor is next in Mooresville, North Carolina. Hi, Connor. Hi, um, I have a question, but first I'd like to shout out uh, my AP Gov teacher, Mr. Hugh Bacher. He's the best. Um, and my question is, if the president were to disagree with the actions taken by an independent agency, what can the president do to limit the effects of these actions? So that's a really good question. Um, one of the first things that uh, a president can do is uh, change the budget requests um, that uh, he or maybe someday she and um, the OMB request when they're uh, creating budget requests that are eventually going to be sent to Congress and then haggled over. Uh, so the president can uh, reflect his or her agenda by requesting additional funding or they, there can almost be a punitive action of requesting far less funding uh, for a, a specific agency in order to impact uh, the power that they have to carry out their agenda, which may be in conflict with the president's. All right, and we have a tweet that's come in from Carter who says, shout out to my teacher, Mr. Cloth. I hope I said that right, and Alter High School in Ohio. Which court cases are expected to play the biggest roles in the exam this year? Ladies. Oh, so we never <laughs> recommend, even though we like to do some sort of armchair gaming of what do we think it's going to be, we never recommend trying to guess because the College Board you know, has their mysterious ways. And That's so right. you could, and, the, and also we have a few other factors in play. One, of course, is that this version of the test, as you know, is only a couple of years old. Right, so we're still finding our way with what they might do and what they might not do. But more importantly, in 2020, because of that 2020 life, there were <laughs> so many different prompts and so mm -hmm. many different cases got used that it's really hard to say, okay, these ones were used and so these are the ones that are left over. Now, I think my students are definitely hoping for a First Amendment free speech case, mm -hmm. if for no other reason than so they can try to find a way to either name check the Cocoa Hut from Mahoney VBL last year or write about bong hits for Jesus in Morse v. Frederick. But so maybe free speech, it could be anything else. But the key thing is know how the cases connect to each other. As Shoshana said, try to categorize the cases, yes. which ones are about speech, which ones are about religion, how do they relate. And to remember that if you can't recall offhand the name of the case, 
-hmm. It is okay to write about what it was about. And most of the time, you're still gonna get the point. That is correct. All right, Argon is in Livermore, California. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'd like to both ask and take a question. And okay. my connection is somewhat poor, so I may not be able to hear you very well. Okay, go ahead and ask your question first. Uh, so I wanted to ask, is the Supreme Court term stare decisis, uh, um, is it synonymous with precedent? It is. You need to know both of them because they've both been used on the AP exam, but they can be used interchangeably. So Correct. stare decisis, the idea you stand on the decision. You go with what has gone before, which, of course, the precedent to proceed to go before. And Argon, I'm being told that you only get one or the other. So sorry, I won't be able to oh, give no. you a question. <laughs> let's, let's talk to Maggie in um, Franken, Franklinville, North Carolina. Good morning, Maggie. Good morning. I would like to shout out my dove teacher, Miss Hoos. Go Trojans. Okay. Do you want to take a question or ask a question? Can I ask a question? Sure. Go ahead. When writing the SCOTUS FRQ, would College Board ever compare a well-known case like a Bergefeld v. Hodges to something like Roe v. Wade on the issue of privacy, or is it strictly a case the students likely have not heard of? The pattern that we've seen so far since the redesign has pretty much exclusively been unfamiliar cases um, or cases that they would assume are unfamiliar to the majority of the students. Um, so I don't think there's going to be a gotcha where uh, they ask a question about a case that is relatively familiar and they expect you to know a bunch of information. It probably is going to be one that you haven't heard of before or don't know much about. And whether or not it is, everything you need to write about the new case is on the page. It's mm -hmm. just a matter of pulling down. There's not an expectation that you're familiar with anything other than the 15. There's an right. expectation that you're familiar enough with the 15 to be able to compare those with the information that's on the page for the new case. All right, Jacqueline is up next in Rancho Santa Margarita, California. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi. Hi, good morning. Uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to my teacher, Mr. Litch from Chibrico Hills High School. And I had a question regarding political cartoons and the AP exam. So I wanted to ask, how would you personally believe would be the best way to analyze any type of political cartoon, whether it's on the multiple choice section or in the writing portion? Sure. So if it's on the multiple choice section, the best way to attack it is to read the question first. Correct. Right? So that you know what it is you're expected to discern. But before you even do that, when you see that question, skip it on the multiple choice. Do the easy questions first. Get those easy points on the page before you do anything else. So any question that is long, time consuming, or both gets skipped. You don't do it on your first pass through the page. One of the best attacks for the multiple choice is not to go one, two, three, four, five, go through it, and again, you get those easy points first because oftentimes, the questions at the back end of the test have the lowest rate of correct answers across the country because students run out of time. But those questions aren't necessarily harder. So if you get that question right and most people get it wrong, you are ahead of the game. And that, of course, is what you're trying to do. Because you want to remember, this test is not scored on an objective metric. You mm -hmm. are scored relative to the rest of the country. So you're thinking about how you can beat other students. Uh, with no disrespect to your fellow students taking the exam, but having good test strategy is going to be your best friend. So number one, skip it. Number two, when you do go back to it, read the question first. So often you can actually find the correct answer without even using the infographic. 
you should have a sense in your head what's true. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the cartoon to confirm what you already think the answer is. But then once you are looking at the cartoon, any labels, any titles, any captions, the year it was published is going to give you mm -hmm. so much starter information and then you can go ahead and start looking at in detail at what's actually been drawn. I would only add to that that um, occasionally you do get a question about the message of the political cartoon and at that point it, it's difficult to uh, answer that without really investigating. So there's three levels for a political cartoon that you want to look at and your acronym is LIE. So literally what is there? Um, and then what is inferred? What is, what is the, the um, insinuation from the political cartoon? And then what would the explanation be? What conclusion can be drawn from that? And um, I think taking those uh, recommendations together, you're going to do an amazing job. All right, Jacqueline, good luck on that. And Brady is next in North Carolina. Hi, Brady. Um, hi. I first had a shout out, Miss Hoot. Go Trojans. And my question is, can y'all explain super PACs versus PACs and 527 groups? So PACs Absolutely. and super PACs. Yep. So the, the short version is that PACs um, have stricter rules. Um, there are much lower limits, or I guess limits at all, on the money that you can donate because money can be donated directly to candidates and their campaigns. Um, so the, the federal government has rules, has limitations on how much an individual or an organization can donate in any election cycle. Whereas super PACs, since they don't go directly, the donations don't go directly to the candidate, there's not supposed to be um, collusion or crosstalk with the candidate or with their campaign. This is an independent expenditure, in other words, independent of the candidate, him or herself. Um, then with uh, Citizens United, the court said that those, uh, camp uh, those donations cannot be limited because they're a form of free speech. So super PACs, big money uh, and more restrictions, um, and PACs uh, can go directly to the candidate but less money. All right, so two quick rememberers for that. Mm -hmm. Super PACs, supersized. Big, 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 big donations. And super PACs like superheroes. They're flying around doing their own thing. They're not coordinating. They're not going to be bound by rules or restrictions mm -hmm. or any kind of coordination of what the candidate wants them to do. They're running around in their minds, the superhero is saving the day. Mm -hmm. All right, next up is Sage in Yorba Linda, California. Ooh. Hi. Hi. Um, and could I shout out Mrs. Cavaluzzi, um, my gov teacher, who is also on TV right now. <laughs> Hi, Sage. How, how do you think Hi. your teacher's doing on TV, Sage? I think she's doing a really good job. Me too. Do you have a question or you want to answer a question? Um, could I answer a challenge question? Oh, good. Okay. Girl. We're going to um, pull up a question for you. In the meantime, I'll start reading it. Identify okay, and... You. Identify and describe examples of pluralist democracy in U.S. government. So pluralist democracy would be the idea that um, multiple groups have influence on our democracy. So this would mostly be referring to interest groups. And one example of pluralist democracy in action would be with lobbying and with groups like the NAACP, the ACLU, trying to um, 
make sure that individuals um, and people of different um, backgrounds have their own civil rights and civil liberties. So they would go to senators and representatives and ask them to pass legislation that would benefit their interest group specifically. All right, what do you think? Does she get the water bottle? Great job, great job. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would recommend. Yes. Great job, Sage. All right, uh, congratulations, Sage. You get, you get a C-SPAN water bottle. Let's go next to Aiden in Chico, California. Good morning, Aiden. Good morning. Uh, I would like to answer a challenge question. Okay. Let's pull up a second challenge question, and if you get it right, you get a C-SPAN tote bag. Here's the question. Identify and explain a way that Congress can check the power of the courts. Yeah, so one of the ways that Congress can check the power of the court is through the power of the purse, which is a pretty extensive power that Congress has. Um, They can reduce funding to various facets of the courts, um, and they can also, I believe, review the courts uh, at state and local levels. Is that good enough, ladies? What do you think? Well, Aiden, I would want to uh, clarify a little bit. I think you're, you're headed in the right direction, um, that we know that uh, Congress uh, has power over the jurisdictions of the courts, right? So they can establish new courts. Um, aside from adding to the Supreme mm-hmm. Court, there can only be one. Um, and uh, that they can uh, create new courts and indicate what their jurisdiction is. Um, Congress also has, especially the Senate, a great deal of influence over the courts because they're the ones who uh, confirm who is going to be the judges or justices on federal courts. So in the Constitution, uh, the president appoints, and then it's with the advice and consent of the Senate. So this is a huge opportunity for Congress to influence the directions of the courts uh, by making sure to confirm people who are truly dedicated to the law, knowledgeable, and appropriate people to uh, be adjudicating cases at the federal level. All right, and Aiden, you get a C-SPAN tote bag. Make sure you take it with you to, to uh, high school. Gavin is up next in uh, Florida. Good morning, Gavin. Good morning. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Mr. Bass and also wish him a happy birthday today. And then um, my question is, uh, how did the 14th Amendment increase individual rights? Sure. So the 14th Amendment uh, increases individual rights. You have two ways you can approach and attack that. One, through the Equal Protection Clause, mm-hmm. which is used as the basis for decisions like Brown v. Board and other decisions to ensure civil rights and that the law applies equally to all people. And then secondly, through the Due Process Clause. Mm-hmm. So remember that the fo- Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment is the basis for selective incorporation, a term you definitely should know when dealing with the courts. So selective incorporation is using the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to apply the Bill of Rights to the states on a gradual case-by-case, right-by-right basis over time. Mm -hmm. So to explain that a little more clearly rather than just define it, meaning the 14th Amendment's due process clause is the reason that the Supreme Court or the mechanism the Supreme Court has used to require states to respect Bill of Rights guarantees because you want to remember that as originally written, the Bill of Rights only pertains to the federal government. Correct. That's why the language yeah. is Congress shall make no law, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's not till the 14th Amendment's due process clause, which restricts states, mm-hmm. that the Supreme Court starts pulling down effectively those rights through the 14th Amendment to apply them to the states. And therefore, the citizens within those states get receiving the protections of the Bill of Rights. Correct. 
All right, Danielle is next in Corona, California. Good morning, Danielle. Nice. Good morning. I would like to shout out Mr. Ellis' sixth period AP Gov class. And my question was, what is the function of the House Rules Committee? House Rules, Rules Committee? The traffic cop. And they control the flow of legislation. You come here, you stop. And if you think about that, just that quick, it's the traffic cop. That should help clarify all the rest of it. But they set the rules for debate because, of course, in the Senate, there's unlimited debate. In the House, there is not. So they're managing the flow of legislation and agenda controls outcome, order controls outcome. And if your bill can't get a vote, it certainly can't pass. And so those guys on the House Rules Committee are very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. All right. Kate is calling us from Bullock, North Carolina. Hi, Kate. Kat, sorry, it's Kat. Um, oh, you're good. I'd like to give a shout out to Mr. Swanner at Oxford Preparatory School. And I was gonna ask a question. Okay, go ahead. So my question was, what is the role of the bureaucracy and what are some of its powers and influences? Ooh. So this is such an interesting one because really if we look numerically at where the bulk of our government is, <laughs> it's in the bureaucracy. So it, it's really clear to us we have you know the president who executes the laws, we have uh, and the executive branch, we have the uh, Congress who obviously creates the laws, legislates, we have the judicial which interprets. What does the bureaucracy do? They help the president execute the laws. Um, and so, because obviously we have a bajillion laws, uh, the one man cannot be responsible for executing <laughs> or a woman cannot be responsible for executing all of that. So we have different branches of the bureaucracy that are responsible for that. Another term that you really wanna know here um, is bureaucratic discretion. Mm -hmm. So uh, when Congress writes a law they don't necessarily put all the minutia in of how that law is going to be carried out. So then it is up to the department the, uh, of the bureaucracy uh, to interpret um, and to create their own rules within um, their application of the law, which means they have a great deal of power uh, because if Congress says go do X and then the, the bureaucracy has the opportunity to determine when how, by what vehicle, and so on, um, then that gives them a, a great deal of control over the ways that um, the laws actually impact us as citizens. All right, Carson is in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Hi, Carson. Hello, are you still doing answer, answering questions, like for students yes. answering your questions? Yes, I can give you a question. Would you like one? Sure. Okay, here it is. And have you muted your TV? I can hear something in the background. Okay, so here's your question, Carson. Explain how selective incorporation expanded civil liberties. Yes, so selective incorporation uh, was when the court decided to use the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause to apply uh, the amendments and the Bill of Rights to the states. And so then that was used to expand uh, civil liberties and civil protections because it applied those more broadly. Is that correct, ladies? So just quick. Just quick clarification, it's the due process clause when you're talking about selective incorporation rather than the equal protection clause. But otherwise, you are correct. And you could That's use fantastic. an example like uh, one of our key cases, right, McDonald v. Chicago, incorporating the Second Amendment, Gideon v. Wainwright, incorporating the Sixth Amendment. Great job. All right, good job, Carson. Matthew is in Corona, California. Hi, Matthew. Um, it's Michael. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My screen says Matthew. <laughs> Okay, um, I'd like to shout out Mr. Ruelas' third period class for being our teacher throughout the year. He's a really great teacher, and I really appreciate him. 
Um, my question is, which of the following has a quicker impact on the economy, monetary or fiscal policy, and why? So generally speaking, it, it, that would really depend on which tools are used, mm -hmm. right? So there's that's it, this is social science, right? Mm -hmm. It depends. Right. <laughs> right. There's no not necessarily a whole lot of right and wrong answers. There's just generally well and poorly de defended ones, right? So if you got a question like that you need to look and see what tool is actually being used because some things like fiscal policy that says we're going to pass stimulus checks right, is going to have a pretty quick effect as soon as those checks hit your mailbox. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, a monetary policy like job owning, we're going to go on TV and talk about something and send a message to banks. If banks respond right away, that can have a pretty quick effect as well. So that's not one I would say where there's a clear-cut answer. It's really tool-dependent. Uh, and so what you would want to focus on more in your preparation is what is the distinction between the two and what does each of them look like in practice. And we have a tweet from Grace Rylan and Sarah from Oakcrest. And here's the tweet. It says, what was the overall impact of Citizens United versus FEC, both on campaign reform and on freedom of speech? Well, it, the impact almost can't be overstated. <laughs> um, so Citizens United had uh, a massive impact, first of all, by pushing back on McCain-Feingold um, and uh, indicating that um, unions and corporations, for the purpose of uh, the First Amendment, are treated as people and so that they do have free speech by also clarifying that political spending is free speech, and then by opening the, the, uh, the door or the floodgates <laughs> to uh, this unlimited uh, political spending uh, through super PACs, where, again, the money is not going directly to the candidate. Um, it's usually going to issues. It could be in support of the candidate, but not with collusion uh, or cooperation with their campaign. Um, and so uh, the impact is pretty significant on ex expansion of First Amendment rights um, for, for groups and organizations, uh, as well as uh, just ballooning political spending. All right, let's talk to Thomas in Levittown, New York. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. Uh, I would like to give a quick shout out to Derek Pierce and Steve Costello, my two AP Gov teachers throughout the year. Uh, oh. But for uh, my question, can you explain the difference between Keynesian and uh, supply side economics? Sure, absolutely. So Keynesian is the idea of priming the pump, right? So it's a little mm -hmm. more ground up spending and supply side is more trickled down. And so that's the very quick answer. Keynesian spending is like the New Deal. We are going to put people to work. We are going to hire artists to go paint a mural in the post office. Why? Well, it's nice to have a mural in the post office, but mostly because then we can give that artist a paycheck. And that artist is gonna take the paycheck to the grocery store and use it to buy food. And then the guy that runs the grocery store is going to have money to both you know, go buy shoes for his family, which gives the shoe salesman money, but also to pay his cashiers who are then going to go to the movies and spend money at the movies. So you have this multiplier effect of we are putting the money in somebody's pocket and then they're turning around and spending it and in spending. the economy. Right, so that's Keynesian and that's that approach, putting it in on that ground level, kind of that consumer level. Supply side is like giving a tax cut to a corporation and saying if we do that, then that money will trickle down. The corporation is gonna take that money that they're now not paying on taxes and use it for bonuses, use it for research and development, use it for marketing, and in that way, spread the money, or use it to hire more employees, and in that way, spread the money around. So it's really a question, in both cases, it's about the government investment of money into 
the economic sector, it's just a question of where the money goes in from the top or from the bottom. All right. I would agree. And I would say the stimulus checks that, that we have gotten over the last couple of years would probably be a really good example of Keynesian. Mm -hmm. Ryan is next in Madison, Ohio. Hi, Ryan. Hi, what's going on? This is Ryan from Leroy. Just want to give a quick shout out to the best AP Gov teacher in the world, Mr. Dan Corrigan from San Ignatius. Go Cats. Uh, I got a quick question for you guys. Uh, how can I best describe the relationship between the entrance groups and the bureaucracy and the, regard and the Iron Triangle? Sure. So th that does tend to be the component that is the most difficult because it's fairly easy to understand the congressional committee and the related agency piece, and it's easy to understand the congressional committee and the interest group piece. Mm -hmm. That last prong of the triangle can be more complicated, mm -hmm. but it is the idea that, we, as Shoshana said, the bureaucracy is actually implementing the law. They're actually carrying it out most of the time. Correct. Usually two interest groups, especially if you think about corporations as an interest group, and you think about an agency like the FCC. The FCC is imposing fines on media companies or corporations when they feel that there has been some transgression of the rules. So if you're the interest group, you have a strong incentive in how the FCC interprets the rules, what kind of fines they impose, etc. So the interest group can try to lobby the agency directly, but most of the people working in that agency, you'll remember, are civil right. servants. They have job security, and so that's not necessarily going to be as effective as, say, lobbying a congressman. But, oh, wait, the interest group can lobby a congressman, and Congress controls the budget for that agency. So often the relationship is indirect, the interest group leveraging their relationship with the members of the congressional committee in the hope that the members of the congressional committee will put pressure on the agency to do what the interest group wants them to do. All right, next is Alexi in Corona, California. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just want to shout out Mr. L. This is sixth period. Um, I have a question. So I want to know what's the best way to tackle the argumentative part of the essay, the argumentative essay. The which part? The argumentative the whole, the essay. Whole, the, oh, the whole the thing. Okay. All right. So uh, for the argumentative essay, um, the first thing that you want to look at is what exactly is the question asking you? Um, so um, for students at Valhalla High School, um, where I, uh, I have taught AP government in the past, go Norseman, um, one of the challenges that we work on constantly is making sure that in your beautiful response, you're not answering a different question mm -hmm. than the question that's on the page. So you want to make sure, um, what exactly is that question asking? Mark it at. Then the second thing you want to do is look at the three pieces of evidence uh, from which you're going to choose for your first body paragraph. Using those three pieces of evidence, which side, because it's usually an either or, um, a, a binary choice for your uh, argument, which side of the argument can you argue better? Um, and then uh, even if that's not what you personally think, go with the one that you can argue better, mm -hmm. argue more successfully. Once you make your argument, make sure that you don't just say one or the other, you have to have a because. And that because has to be revisited in your explanation of every piece of evidence for the remainder of your essay. So keep that consistent viewpoint, don't flip-flop. Keep your because in all of your commentary and connections. Um, and remember that for the second body paragraph, you can use any piece of evidence, anything you've learned in your course, any current events, any historical events. Um, or you could use a different one of the three uh, 
uh, documents that were provided by College Board. So you have a lot of latitude there. And just remember, I'm going to reiterate something that Shoshana said. AP right, does not just mean advanced placement and does not just mean accelerated procrastination. It means answer the prompt. Mm -hmm. right? So that's the most important thing you can do, gain clarity on what you're being asked and answer that question. All right, let's take a tweet from Emerson in Ohio. He says, first, I would like to shout out to my teacher, Mr. Dieters. He is awesome. Secondly, my question is, are there more stimulus-based multiple choice questions than regular questions? Not more. There are quite a few, though. And so the mm -hmm. format from the recent released exams is you're going to have the non-stimulus-based ones toward the beginning, mostly, and then the stimulus-based ones toward the end. But I think it's about two-thirds non, a third stimulus-based. It might be a little more half-and-half mm -hmm. half if you count the ones that have, like, the table. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're going to have, you're going to expect that there's going to be a passage of some sort that you're going to have to mm -hmm. be able to interpret, an infographic or several, and then there will be the which pair of answers is correct, which I don't know that you would call that stimulus-based. I certainly would say it's probably in a gray area, but it's more difficult maybe than a conventional right. question. So those will be on the back portion, but maybe, let's just say a third, 40%, somewhere yeah. in there, varying by time. Ballpark. All right. Dayton. And also remember that for each each for each stimulus, you're going to have uh, usually multiple questions. Um, so that gives you an opportunity. Glance at the questions first, then look at the stimulus and pick it apart for what you're looking for. If you're seeing a stimulus that's a long paragraph, do not get intimidated. Don't let them back you into a corner. You're going to be able to handle it. All right. Sophia's next in Dayton, Ohio. Hi, Sophia. Hi. Uh, first, I'd like to shout out my teacher, Mr. Klaus, at Alter High School. Um, and my question is, what is the difference between the Due Process Clause in the Fifth Amendment and the Due Process Clause in the Fourteenth Amendment? Sure. Due process is the right so nice they guaranteed it twice, right? So <laughs> in the Fifth Amendment, due process is limiting the federal government. In the Fourteenth Amendment, it's limiting the state governments. All right. And that will be our last call for today. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. And we're wishing all the students a great um, Exam on Monday, and best of luck. Definitely. You've got this. Just trust what you've done and go out there and attack the test. Don't just take the test. The test might take you. Attack the test. You've got this. Go crush You're it. You're going to do a great job. And don't forget you can uh, see uh, C-SPAN in the classroom on our website, cspan.org slash classroom. Also, if you missed any of today's program or would like to watch it again as you review for the exam, you can find the streaming video at cspan.org slash classroom. You can re-listen to the audio as part of our C-SPAN in the Classroom podcast at cspan.org slash podcasts on the free C-SPAN Now video app or wherever you listen to podcasts.